welcome to Researcher Revealed, the podcast where we go behind the research to get to know the researcher. On today's episode, we have joining us Professor Alison Pilnick. She is a professor of language, medicine and society at the Manchester Metropolitan University. She's a sociologist and she focuses around health and illness focused on the communication or healthcare interactions that occur in multiple healthcare settings here in the UK. I've asked her to join the podcast today because I read her book titled Reconsidering Patient-Centered Care a while back, and I found it fascinating. And I wanted to dive down into a little bit more as to why she wrote the book, as well as the tool that she uses to do the vast majority of her analysis, and that's conversation analysis. So it's kind of going to be divided into two sections, this podcast a bit of a masterclass on on a specific type of a method, as well as finding out why she does research and specifically why she wrote this book. Uh, I hope you enjoy. The podcast where we go beyond the researcher in order to discover why they're doing research. On today's episode, we have Professor Professor Alison Pilnick, who's a sociologist um, and a professor of language, medicine, and society at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, Alison, do you want to say hi? Hello. Hi. Yeah, it's really nice to be here, Rosaline. Uh, yeah. So, uh, wow. I mean, you've 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 introduced me. You you've said what my job role is. I should say that I'm very new at Manchester Met. So, I started here on the first of October. Uh, and I guess that what I'm hoping to do here in Manchester is continue the work that I've done previously in my career, which has always had a focus on examining communication between health and social care professionals and their patients or clients. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to dive into it. But before we do, um, for everybody out there, you're probably used to this already, but we're going to do our rapid 11 first. A little bit of fun just to get just to get the brain going and get the conversation started. So are you ready? I think so. (laughs) Don't worry. Don't worry. It's all fun. So first question, are you a Windows or a Mac? User. I'm Windows. I'm Windows. I, I tried a Mac because everybody told me that I should and I'm afraid that I didn't get on with it at all. <laughs> You're not the first person to confess that. Okay, no. next. Are you tea or coffee? Oh, I'm very definitely tea. I am I am an inveterate tea drinker. I don't I, I maybe drink about three cups of coffee in a year and only then because I'm in some scenario where there's no alternative to it. So I take my tea quite seriously. Me too. Another tea fan. Yay. Uh, the first couple of people, it's been coffee, 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 but then there's now been two that are tea and I'm like, Phew, I'm not alone. <laughs> okay. Next question. When you write, um, yeah. do you have music or silence? So I tend to write in silence, but I, I also, I think if anybody looks at me that I look like the world's most unproductive person because I don't, like writing until I know where things are going so I like to have a kind of narrative arc in my head before I actually begin writing and that means that I spend a lot of time doing what probably looks to the casual observer like nothing at all so typically I kind of walk or I find swimming is really good for for just working out where I want the narrative arc of something to go and then I'll write an awful lot 
in a really short time but I have to have that sort of run up to it first so I'm sure that you know kind of that's that's antithetical to any advice that anybody might ever give you on any kind of writing workshop and it's not the advice that I give to my own PhD <laughs> students and, and the people that I mentor but it is what works for me. I, I love it it's one of my favorite questions that one because that was you learn so much about how unique and individual people's um how how people work and like insight into their mind so I love that where do you tend to work home or office uh, I do a mixture of both so I kind of once I once I've decided that I'm in that writing phase I could write pretty much anywhere I think okay. and and so I you know I, I do write at home and and that's great but then sometimes I feel the need to, to rejoin the human race and then and then I would go into work and, and, and write in my office and, and that's generally fine too. So I'm, I'm not tied to a specific location so much as a specific process, I think. Oh, oh, I like that. Not about the location, it's about the process. I like that. Um, you're, the time of day you're most productive? Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not an early morning person. But mm-hmm. I, you know, kind of from from about sort of ten o'clock ish, I think is my is my is my peak writing time in the morning. Particularly if I've been able to swim or or do something mm. else first that puts me in the right frame of mind to do that. I'm not a late night person. I'm not. I'm not kind of. There is nothing productive to be got out of me beyond tea time, really. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Favorite referencing management system. <laughs> I, I mean, I think favourite is putting it a bit strongly. I think you know there are there are kinds of there are kinds of necessary thing, but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I love any of them. But what but what I use is EndNote. Okay, perfect. I love that. We're getting along perfectly. Um, your favourite data data visualisation tool. So how you make your figures, your graphs, things like that. Okay, so this, this is a topic of huge contention because I. I am so much a words person. So um, so my partner is an artist, a painter, and the kind of standing joke amongst everybody who knows us is that he does the pictures and I do the words. <laughs> and then somehow, somehow that works together. So, you know, I'm not a visual thinker. I love words. I work with words. Again, you know, the kind of... Uh, I suppose I think of things as, as necessary evils rather than rather than things that I love. So for me, that's a really difficult question to answer. It, it's, it's kind of. So what are what are the software packages that are the necessary evils for data visualization? Well, I suppose the thing is that for for conversational analysis, which is the kind of research that I tend to do, what you usually want people to do is to have access to the talk in as much detail as is possible so that they can kind of not only see your interpretations but see how you're making those interpretations and for me then I use something called Transorana but that's probably not a piece of software that <laughs> that lots of your listeners will have come across you know it's, it's a very kind of niche thing. Interesting very cool right moving away from the necessary evils favorite desk desk snack? Oh so I I am very fond of a banana. I, I kind of always, 
I always have bananas in my bags and then and then sometimes I realize that I've had a banana in my bag for about six weeks and it's got squashed at the bottom or to kind of gloss <laughs> over that but yeah so I, I usually have bananas about my person I've got one I've got one here right now I love that brilliant um so when it comes to planning or organizing whether that's a project your day-to-day life are you more of a digital person or are you a pen and paper person Oh, so, I mean, for a really long time, I was a pen and paper person and I still Mm -hmm. always have a notebook and a pen on me because because sometimes ideas strike and I have a notebook and a pen by my bed because because sometimes you think of ideas in the middle of the night and you know, you know, from bitter experience that if you wait till the morning, they'll be gone and you don't remember them anymore. So so paper and pen for kind of immediacy. Um, and I quite often read papers in hard copy still too, because I, I kind of like to make notes on the margins of them, and, and it never feels quite the same annotating an electronic document. Mm. But I don't, you know, when I write, I write, <laughs> I write on a laptop, or <laughs> I don't, I don't write longhand and then and then type it up. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. What book are you currently reading? Well, so I. I have I have just started in a new role and so I have been rereading some things that, that, okay. I, haven't, that I haven't read for a little while and um, what I've been rereading mostly are journal articles rather than books okay so, but, but but what I did read over the summer with the so my my book was shortlisted for the the um the Foundation for Sociology of Health and Illness book prize and uh, and I was very fortunate that it won that prize but I read the other three books that were on the shortlist which were which were excellent books all of them so all really really different so so a book focused on the sociology of mental health by Baptiste Brassard and Amy Chandler uh, a book about cities and you know the the kind of the health of people relative to the cities that they live in and the effect that the environment has on us by Jess Fitzgerald and, and Nicholas Rose uh, and a book about by Anne Pollock called Sickening which is about anti-black racism in the US and the impact that uh, that has on people's health um, and so I'm in three really really different books and you know kind of using different methods and, and written from really different perspectives but I really really enjoyed all of them and, and obviously I think people should buy my book but I just think people should buy those other three books as well because because they're great. Well what we'll do is I will chase you on email and get you just to send me the titles and authors of those books because what mm. I tend to do for all of the books that anybody who comes on the podcast mention is I put them in the description of the podcast and in the YouTube so that any listener or watcher can go in and hunt them down to make it a bit easier. Um, so we'll do that, including your own. Um, but we'll put that on a shelf for a second because we're going to get one more question. Okay. Um, and who is your research hero? Oh, gosh, I find that a really difficult question to answer because I think there, you know, that there are different people who are heroes for different reasons. Yeah. But if I really am picking just one person, then I'm picking Gail Jefferson, who's a sociologist whose work was 
instrumental in the foundation of conversation analysis, which is the method that, you know, the, the perspective that I like to work from. But I think, as is often the way for women in fields like these, perhaps has not had the recognition that she should have had relative to relative to other people who who you know who also did really important foundational work and, and were working at the same time as her. Interesting, fascinating. I'm gonna gonna look her up. <laughs> um, thank you. That's that's the rapid eleven. See, I told you it wasn't that horrible. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> you survived and really interesting um, answers as well. So what we're going to do now is we're going to launch into the actual meat of the podcast. And you've already been giving away loads of hints to our listeners. Um, <clears throat> but basically, just to give everybody a little bit of a background, the reason why I've even found and knew that you existed was your book. So the book Reconsidering Patient-Centered Care. Um, and I read it following my PhD because I had some observations in my PhD data that made me really want to explore um, the research around a healthcare interaction. And somebody somehow recommended your book to me. So I've I managed to get a hold of it and I've read it and I found it fascinating. But what I want to ask you to start mm. is why 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 healthcare interactions? Why research around healthcare interactions? And as a sociologist, why why that book? Okay, gosh, oh, <laughs> where to start? So, so why healthcare interactions? So, I've got a bit of an odd career history. So, my first degree mm -hmm. was in pharmacy, and mm. I worked originally as a hospital pharmacist. Mm -hmm. And at the time I did my degree, well, I mean, it wasn't even called pharmacy when I did it. It was called pharmaceutical science, although it was the degree that led you yeah, to yeah, be yeah. a pharmacist, which gives you some kind of indication of where the emphasis in, in that degree was placed. And so when I qualified, I one of the first roles that I had was, was in paediatric oncology. Okay. And I suppose that, you know, I... So I was kind of 22, 23. I I had no no kind of real life experience on on which to draw. I mean, you know, at that age you think you do, but but you don't really know. You don't really know much about how the world works. Um, and I hadn't had that, you know, that that kind of grounding and communication skills training in my degree, and so. I felt that I was trying to deal with scenarios that I didn't have the communicative competence, I guess, to manage. Yeah. And that made me interested in what, what that communicative competence would look like. And then it was one of those right place, right time things, I suppose, in the, in the, the Department of Health had a scheme at that time that they, it's long since defunct now, mm. where, they were, where they were trying to, to interest healthcare professionals other than doctors in, in, in kind of multidisciplinary research. Okay. And so I applied to that scheme to get money to do first a master's and then a PhD to think about what 
what communicative competencies for pharmacists might might look like you know what 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 we might find out about interactions between pharmacists and and their patients or clients and and how that might feed into you know into better training for pharmacists um and i think all the time that i was doing that i had the intention that i would go back at the end of it to being a pharmacist again but just be a better pharmacist yeah and then I got offered a, a kind of couple of short term posts, research posts at the end of my PhD, not looking at pharmacy interaction, but looking at healthcare interaction in other yeah. scenarios. And I kind of thought, oh, that looks interesting. I'll just do that. That looks interesting. I'll, I'll just okay. do that. And then I got offered a permanent post. And so, you know, kind of getting on to 30 years later, this is, <laughs> this is where I still am. So I think, you know, that's the long answer to your question. The short answer is that basically my entire career has been predicated on being really rubbish at my first job and trying to find some way to be, trying to find some way to be better at it. So yeah, yeah, my, my entire career is built on my own inadequacies, basically. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that because like, what a powerful what a powerful way to kick off what has been an incredible research career is you you noticed something that wasn't right and you got curious about it and now it's led you down this entirely different pathway. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, so that's how you got into research. So and uh, the also how you got into like looking at those healthcare interactions. So why? Um, why that book? Why reconsidering patient-centered care? Because at the minute, I'm sure you're aware, patient-centered care and um, shared decision-making are like the buzzwords in healthcare systems around the world. So why reconsidering? Why that book? So I guess, so so ever since my PhD, you know, including my PhD and ever since, I have been working on different projects in different healthcare settings. So, you know, I, I know some people have a particular kind of clinical or subject area that, that they work in and they work in that throughout their career. And for me, the interesting thing has always been where is the communication problem? So, you know, I, I've, I've worked in a kind of whole range of areas, so, you know, obstetrics, anaesthetics and surgery, dementia care, primary care, pharmacist patient interaction, you know, kind of all, all, all kinds of different places. And what's always driven that work has been that, that either I have been aware or, or somebody has approached me and said, you know, this is this is a thing that, that we're finding difficult and we'd like to unpick why, why it's so hard. And so, you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of different funded projects in those different areas. And none of those projects were specifically set up to look at patient-centred care. So they, they looked at things like risk communication or the okay. use of second language in healthcare consultations or advice giving as a practice mm -hmm. and, and how mm -hmm. that might optimi optimise. You know, so, so, so different kinds of things like that. Um, but all of the settings in which I collected those data or, you know, where, where, where those data came from, all of them were underpinned by an ethos of patient-centred care. So, you know, as you say, patient-centred care and shared decision-making have, you know, are buzzwords and have been buzzwords for, for some considerable time. You know, I guess I would argue since the, since the sort of late 80s, that's, yeah. that's been the language of, of healthcare. 
And I suppose that, you know, and, and this will probably be familiar to anybody who, who does any kind of research, that, that always, you know, you're, you're working on a funded project. You've always barely got time to do the thing that you're being funded to do. But there are always interesting other things that you kind of make notes of in your in your notebook. And I suppose one of the things that that I kept making notes of in my notebook across mm. these different settings was ways it, was that I could see that that attempts to practice patient sense of care in these different settings was leading to difficulties for people. Mm. And so there mm-hmm. were the, 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 these little bits of kind of interactions and bits of consultations and bits of data that I was sort of squirreling away thinking, oh, you know, that's that's interesting because because often it was really clear that that practitioners had entered into these consultations with with really good intentions. You know, it, it, wasn't, mm. yeah. it wasn't that people were, you know, deliberately trying to, to ignore patients or, you know, not not listen to their perspectives or so on. You know, you, you could kind of see that people were trying to do the things that, that yeah. are often articulated as the principles of patient-centred care. Yeah. But it wasn't working in the consultation, you know, in the sense that it that it was causing difficulties for patients that were observable in that interaction and so I had a few attempts to get some funding to to look at this so I, I didn't want any new data because I had loads of data that you know, <laughs> that I kind of felt had not been explored to its full mm, analytic potential yeah. but what I needed was some time to to systematically look mm. at all these bits that I've been putting to one side yeah. oh, that's interesting and so I was lucky enough in the end to get first of all a tiny bit of funding from the um, Academy of Medical Sciences through a through what they call their flyer program where I had a, a very small project that that kind of that enabled me just to think about this a bit more and and also to to pick the brains of, of some fantastic flyer colleagues and, and, and other people in the Academy of, of Medical Sciences. And then off the back of that, I wrote a proposal for a British Academy Senior Research Fellowship and, and I was fortunate enough to get that. And that's what gave me the time to, to go back and do the kind of more systematic analysis of, of all this data that I'd already got. And then I guess the, the reason that I wrote it into a book was because because it was too long for a journal article, because I because I wanted to be able to draw on the data from all the different settings to, to build a kind of coherent argument so that so that I could kind of show this was something that was a bit more systemic than just a particular setting or a particular particular set of practitioners. Um, you know, I, I wanted to show that these were these were issues that were kind of recurring across mm. what on the face of it looked like really disparate settings, but that actually there were some commonalities to how mm. they were they were recurring in those settings. Well. Thank you very much for writing it because I found it really challenging um, and made me think loads because like you said in my own research I had exactly those same sort of observations and even even before I did research even as a nurse I've observed how whether it's the existing healthcare system or um, 
the way a clinical consultation is set up, I've seen being the nurse who gets left behind with the patient after the doctor wanders off, um, I've often been that one who helps the patient then negotiate and figure out what the doctor was saying, if that makes sense. Um, And it's not that the clinician wasn't a good communicator, but it's just that whole, um, the complexity involved in a patient's care and their care decisions and, and how somebody who doesn't know the system is expected to navigate and understand that when a doctor says, well, this, that, and the other system, that they know what that means. And there's a lot that gets lost in translation. Um, And and like we said, that patient-centered care and shared decision-making is all over everywhere. And I was like, this is the way forward. And then after your book, I'm like, is this the way forward? (laughs) But um, I think just to kind of sum up your book because um, you very kindly are giving a link which will be in the description that will um, direct people to where they can get your book and you've offered a very generous discount for it as well um, so to help people sort of understand your book uh, I'll, I'll do the horrible thing that is now all the trend in PhDs um, in three minutes <laughs> <laughs> You can have longer than three minutes, but but what 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 was your book about, and what was your conclusion at the end of your book? And then I really want to dive into because um, how you analyze your data. Um, but first off, what was the main message of your book? Okay, yeah, so so uh, so. Patient-centered care is, is ubiquitous, as, as we've already established. You know, you kind of you, you look at NHS documents and policy and service standards and things, and, and you know, it, it it's always there. And I suppose the first thing I was interested in is is what the evidence for it is, because I I na- I naively assumed at the outset, and you know, and you can laugh, and everybody who's listening can laugh, but but my assumption was that for something to become that firmly embedded in policy, there must be a pretty strong evidence base for it. No, so I'm sitting <laughs> at my finger to hold because I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you because I made and continue to make that assumption as well that if if it's if an idea. Um, for me, my discovery was around self-care um, and the self-care practices. You know, I had assumed that, I mean, the writing must have been on the wall around self-care because it is so ubiquitous. And it wasn't until I did my PhD and I dove into it that I'm like, maybe it was just a cool idea that looked like it would cost, save money. So we're going with this rather than having that strong evidence base. Anyways, continue. Sorry. I'm not laughing yeah, no. at you. I just don't want you to think that. <laughs> no, I don't mind if people laugh at me. That's fine because, you know, it may it may well be that other people are less naive about this than I am. But but I suppose that, yeah, I, I was kind of interested in what the evidence base was. And then mm. when I started looking, you know, it it's really remarkably slight for something that has come to have such ubiquity. So, you know, the, there are individual studies in individual settings sure that you can find that that you know that suggests that 
that patient-centered care has positive impacts in in that setting or on the basis of that intervention but if but if you look at reviews that that collect this together so there's a couple of Cochrane systematic reviews um yeah so, so an original one and then an update to it and there's also a um review of an, an american review of shared decision making interventions and that i mean there's this kind of slightly imperfect relationship between patient-centered care and shared decision making because because for some proponents of patient-centered care shared decision making is the defining characteristic of patient-centered care so for those people there is a perfect overlap between patient-centered mm. care and shared decision making if shared decision making is there it's patient-centered and if it isn't it, it's not and so but so i kind of looked at i looked at the evidence there as well and and what you find really is that you know that there's some evidence that that it in some scenarios it makes patients more satisfied with their consultations okay. but, but even, even that isn't kind of universal but there's not really any good evidence or you know the, the evidence is at best very mixed for whether it has any kind mm -hmm. of positive improvement on health outcomes mm -hmm. so it's this kind of scenario whereby whereby sometimes it might make people feel better about their consultations although interestingly that seems to be quite a short-term effect and not not mm -hmm. a long-term one but in terms of health improvements that the evidence mm. isn't isn't really there and, and and so then I suppose you know it's a it's a question about well well why would you do something if the evidence isn't there and of course the argument for patient-centered care then is, is is really a moral one that you know is mm. it, it, it's it rests on moral grounds that you know we we had a problem with medical paternalism and, and certainly mm -hmm. I don't you know I don't deny that you know I, I'm not arguing that we should return to some kind of 1950s scenario of, of doctor knows best and you just do what you're told yeah. and, and ask questions about it. But I think it's, you know, it, it's interesting that the, the, the way that this has been framed as the kind of appropriate moral response to mm. that problem of, of paternalism. Okay. Um, because I think it, you know, as I've said, I, th I, I think it's not, it's not really solving some of the problems that that yeah. it was intended to to solve and i suppose what's really interesting to me is the way that rather than the lack of evidence of positive impact provoking any questioning of the principle what it seems to have done instead is just provoke criticism of healthcare staff so there seems to be a kind of idea that 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 it would work if only healthcare professionals had more or somehow better training in it. Mm. So you get into this kind of circular argument whereby, whereby the only thing that that lots of patient-centered care interventions can be reliably shown to do is improve healthcare professionals' practice of patient-centeredness as measured by that specific intervention. Right. And, and I'm I'm just not sure that that's a fantastically helpful circularity. 
And I'm also not sure how long you retain that kind of deficit model that, that well, we just need to train healthcare professionals better or differently. When I think that is what we've been trying to do since, you know, as I say, since probably the late 80s or, or early 90s, you know, I, and, and so it's interesting to me as a sociologist that, that that doesn't seem to have provoked any more critical interrogation of the concept rather than rather than kind of keep trying to do more of the same, but do it somehow better or, or differently. Um, and so what I did was look at a large corpus of, of healthcare interactions. So I've been collecting data from a range of settings for well for 30 years now. Um, you know, and from a whole range of primary care, secondary care, mostly mostly kind of healthcare, but some interactions that would be kind of on the borders of, of health and social care, whole range of healthcare professionals, so you know, doctors, nurses, midwives, genetic counsellors, speech and language therapists, you know, all, mm -hmm. all, all kinds of, of, of healthcare professionals. And I suppose what I was trying to look at were what the interactional issues were in, mm. in this delivery or in this attempted delivery of patient-centered care. You know, why why does this run into problems? And and I think you know the the kind of well, there are two things. I think that the book is the subtitle of the book that was called Reconsidering Patient-Centered Care Between Autonomy and Abandonment. Mm. And I think that. You know, that that's the subtitle of the book because I think it really does it really does crystallize the problem but in terms of interactionally why it crystallizes the problem I think it's because of what happens to medical expertise mm. when when people try or when practitioners try and enact patient-centeredness so in the book I make a decision between medical expertise and medical authority mm-hmm and I think that patient-centred care has quite rightly problematised medical authority. You know, the, the idea that a, a healthcare professional should should or could simply tell you what to do. Hmm. But I think in problematising patient authority, it's also uh, medical authority. It's also problematised medical expertise, hmm. and that is a bit more problematic. Hmm. And and that's so for me, that's what I loved about your book is that it it really clarified for me um, that rather than trying to like uh, so many other like papers I've read or documents that I've read that points the problem and says it's this thing. Um, it you had a much broader outlook and we're willing to consider that actually it's this healthcare interaction is a really complex event in both the clinician's professional life um, and that person who's come to the clinician life and that there's likely going to be a degree of I hate to say this word but anyway we're going to do it anyway art <laughs> to the science of having a really positive interaction that respects that patient's autonomy, their own individual authority, without putting the 
clinical expertise at risk? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting because I think that health, that people don't consult healthcare professionals simply because they don't know what to do. You know, if, mm. if, they, just, if they just wanted to kind of talk over a problem or, or a decision with somebody, there are probably other people who they can access more easily and, you know, <laughs> at, less, at less financial or, or organisational cost than, than mm. going to the doctor or, you know, and I'm, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about the cost of consultations, but I'm talking about the cost of taking time off work and, you know, yep. and traveling yep. there and paying for childcare and the other things that people have to do in order, in order to attend healthcare appointments. Um, you know, I think people go to see healthcare professionals by and large because they recognise that they can't solve their problems by themselves, that they don't have the expertise to do that. And so healthcare professionals have expertise that they want or need. And I think, you know, time and again in my data, there are people trying to make decisions often about treatment, but not always, sometimes about other courses of action. And the operation, the operationalization of patient-centered care in those kinds of consultations often ends, often or often results in clinicians either asking questions like, "What would you like me to do?" I hate that question. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so you go and see the GP and you present your problem, and the GP says, "What would you like me to do?" And oh, I kind of think I'd like you. I'd like you to. Patient. I yeah. hate that question. It makes me so angry. Like, yeah. and I'm not talking like as a nurse here. I'm talking like I go to the GP because I can't figure out what's wrong. And I have like a higher degree of education than average Joe. But still, when I sit there and they're like, well, how can, what can I do for you today? And I'm like, isn't that your job? Why are you asking me that? <laughs> like, it makes me so angry. Yeah, I think you know, and you know, and it makes some people angry, and it makes other people anxious because because then you think that you should, you know, you should have some possible responses to that, and you know, and and maybe you have no clue what what you know, maybe you have no clue what the appropriate options even are, so that you can't, you know, you can't formulate. Well, because and even that requires a degree of knowledge that that you know, depending on the problem, you might not necessarily have. And as a nurse, like I get even more, I get more, I get angry, but I also get anxious because I'm like, I don't want to get labeled as the neurotic nurse that tells the GP what to do because I know more. So it's, you know, but I know they're asking that because they're trying to be patient centered. Mm -hmm. But the way it's worded, it just puts my teeth on edge. Yeah, and I think you know I I have shared that frustration personally as a patient, and I and I also see it in in my data, you know, and you know there, there are there are particular quotes that stick with me from my data, mm. and, and one of them is that that when somebody is 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 kind of trying to decide on a course of action, and and the doctor suggests that it's up to them, that the patient kind of sits back and and does a bit of an eye roll and says, but you're a learned man. <laughs> <laughs> which, are, which is one of the most kind of explicit mm. um, orientations I have to that in my data. But I suppose the other thing that often happens or, you know, the, the kind of phenomenon that I often see in my data, which, um, you know, is, is not quite the same as that, is that professionals will present 
different possibilities of courses of action. And then they will suggest to the patient that which decision they should make depends on how they feel about the options. Okay. Yeah. And I suppose that the issue I see with that analytically and the issue that, you know, I, I kind of see in my data is that that individualizes a decision to some extent in a way that it sets it completely outside of medical expertise because mm. how you feel is a is an individual feeling that that the professional mm. doesn't necessarily have any access to and i suppose you end up with this kind of weird double bind in which by virtue of being professionals practitioners have access to all sorts of information about the likely advantages disadvantages risks benefits etc of, of a particular treatment or a particular course of action but also by virtue of being professionals who act in accordance with patient centered care and and support patient choice and control they become reluctant to share that information for for fear of impeding that that choice or control. So, you know, it depends on how you feel about it or it depends on how much you worry about it is another formulation that that I see quite often in my data across you know this range of settings. And again, you know, I kind of I worry a little then that that you make a you you make a kind of medical issue of a personal issue in a way that my data suggests isn't necessarily helpful. Interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, I think basically everybody should read the book (laughs) Um, because it, it does, I think for me, the way that it was written, it just encourages you to really be curious and question. And it goes back to me in my head your story of how you got into it is the way you the way I read the book and interpreted it is it helped me ask more questions that have inspired me and wanted me to want like increased a thread to to put in my own research as well as to consider within clinical practice um so I think it's definitely recommended reading um but something that i was hoping to dive into a little bit around your book is your universal use and you you said it in our top 11 um questions as well this way of analyzing data that you um tend to use as your primary way of looking at data um, and you've referred to it as conversation analysis. Now, mm. from knowing a few of the people who are listeners to this, they're much more at an early career research stage. Mm-hmm. So can you just start by um, explaining what conversation analysis is? Mm. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, I, I should maybe say that I, I came to conversation analysis a bit by accident that I, you know, I 
I, I knew that I wanted to look at, at communication between pharmacists and patients, but I didn't I didn't know how I was going to do that. And nothing in my skill set up until that point in my pharmaceutical science degree had given me had given me any idea about about how I might do that. And and I think I mentioned that I was I was lucky enough that I was funded by the Department of Health first for a master's and then for a PhD. And so what that master's did was gave me scope to kind of investigate how it might be possible to, mm. to research this phenomenon. So you know, I, was, I was really fortunate to be exposed to all kinds of, of different approaches and, and different perspectives. And I suppose what attracted me to conversation analysis, you know, is, is what I think is its kind of primary principle, really, is that most or many qualitative methods deal with talk. Mm -hmm. But often, you know, if you think about something like interviews or focus groups, often what they're really interested in is the content of that talk mm -hmm. and in conversation analysis what people are interested in are the things that people are doing with their talk so the way the way that talk is a tool to get things done in the world and okay. you know, how, how we use talk to accomplish you know yeah. The whole kinds of range of, of everyday actions that, that that we do accomplish through through interaction in that way. So I suppose I suppose I was attracted by this idea that you know I, I wanted not only to look at, at the kind of content of the talk in in the way that you might do with a sort of uh, you know a kind of content analysis or a, mm. or a thematic analysis or you know or a kind of code and and count approach. But I really wanted to get into the kind of nitty gritty of that talk, and mm. you know, kind of what are what are the what are the ways that people are using to to do things like give advice or or initiate treatment discussions, or you know, to to bring a discussion to a conclusion, or you know, the, the kinds of practices that have to happen in order mm. in order that somebody leaves their their healthcare consultation, you know, kind of with a with an idea of of what they want or, or need to do next so that was what attracted me I suppose the things that have kept me working from this perspective and you know so I have you know I have worked on projects that have used other methods so you know I, I have commonly used ethnographic methods alongside conversation analysis mm -hmm. I have worked on projects where where there have also been interviews or, or focus groups conducted as as part of project but I suppose there are there are two things one is that what people think they do when they interact is very rarely what they actually do and so you can get so far by talking to people about mm. about how they talk but you can't get much further. And, and I suppose, you know, an, an example of that is a project that I worked on, you know, some time ago now looking at antenatal screening. And, you know, and, you, and you'll probably be aware that, you know, there's a, there's a kind of big issue around choice in antenatal screening. And, you know, the idea that, that individual women should, should decide, you know, what, if any, screening they have, that, you know, screening is mm. not a kind of recommended or mandatory process. And, it, and it's mm -hmm. up to people to, um, to make those decisions. But there's quite a big literature that suggests that women don't feel that <laughs> don't feel that they experience choice in those, okay. in those consultations. Yeah. Um, 
but that literature is interview based and mm. also or it's largely interview based if you look at research with midwives that is interview based they say but we do offer choice and we're really clear that <laughs> we're really clear that this is choice and you know and, and and we tell women this and you kind of think well how can both those things coexist yeah you know, that, that, that somebody thinks they're giving choice that somebody else's experience is not that that choice yeah is, is real or actual and the only way you're going to get you could keep interviewing people forever but the only way you're going to get at that problem is to have some recordings of the actual consultations and and looking at those actual consultations help me understand how those things could coexist because what happened was both people were right or both sets of people were right that midwives at the very beginnings of those consultations almost universally said I'm going to talk to you about screening and, you know, and, and, and it's up to you whether you have it or you don't have it or, you know, it's your choice. You know, th- things that were explicitly expressions of somebody's choice. But they also did things through the way that they framed the screening interactionally and through the way they placed it relative to other things that they talked about that served to undermine that choice. And that was probably completely unintentional. So, you know, if you, if you talk about tests that nobody generally refuses so for example if you don't know what blood group you are and it's important to know that in pregnancy then you know you you might have a blood test to to find that out you might have a blood test to find out what your iron levels are because again that would be important in pregnancy people don't really see those tests as optional or or tend to refuse them because because they see the rationale for them if you segue straight from talking about those kinds of things to talking about screening tests that affects the context in which people hear the subsequent talk so that's one way in which choice might intentionally be undermined the other thing is that obviously there are different kinds of screening tests available to people at different stages in their pregnancy and depending on um, on family history and and so on and it's very easy for those consultations there's an awful lot of information that midwives have to cover in a really short time and some Mm. of it is technical what can happen is that those consultations spend a lot of time on the pros and cons of different kinds of screening rather than talking about the option of not having screening at all so you know even though it's been put on the table at the beginning what happens subsequently can make women feel that that really this is a choice between x and y rather than a choice between screening and and no screening and so I suppose you know that's that's one specific project but it's a good example of 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 why you need to look at actual talk rather than people's reports of talk okay so that's really that that's really helpful because for me um I had a vague understanding that conversation analysis was that combination of both audio and visual visual audio and visual recording in order to pick up on both the verbal and non-verbal ways of communication because 100 percent in interviews you lose that Mm non-verbal but also i found with qualitative like with analyzing my interview data you can lose even though you try and hold on to it the greater flow of conversation Mm -hmm. and context of the conversation 
Um, so when I was at the beginning of my journey, I toyed with the idea of conversation analysis, but I quickly threw it away because I was like, oh my word, I don't have time for that. <laughs> so, because how it was explained to me was that it's like you have to like, uh, like every R, uh, every pause, every mm -hmm. eye roll, every, you know, who says what first and where they're looking when they're talking and all this other stuff. And I'm like, I got like a limited time to do this. And it's just, so I think, what would be really interesting if you're happy is to share like how how do you make conversation analysis because I agree like that context is is crucial to understanding that interaction so how do you make it so that it is a viable option yeah. in in research Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I understand your pain about, you know, kind of looking, looking at what it entailed and thinking, you know, that's not for me. And, I, you know, and, and yes, I, I know the transcription system kind of puts people off sometimes. I, I suppose what you're trying to do is when you're trying to, you know, when, when you're transcribing data to use from a CA perspective, you're trying to retain as much detail about not just what was said but how it was said mm. because, because those things matter because we all know mm. that you can say exactly the same words but with different intonation yep. And, yep. and people interpret completely different things from them um i suppose that i mean I, you know i i work sometimes with audio but always by preference with video data you know i mean in some settings video is just it's just not possible in some in other settings it would be it would be too time consuming so you know i, I kind of i try to be pragmatic about about whether audio alone would be okay so i have a phd student at the moment who is um researching um telephone consultations between GPs and their patients and, and obviously there isn't really any <laughs> there isn't really any visuals there mm. because they you know they, they they're not seeing each other and so mm. you know pragmatically there's there's not a lot that's lost from from audio in that in that setting because you just have the GP sitting on their own in the surgery mm. talking to somebody on a phone if you had video on the other hand if you're if you're researching something like physiotherapy then clearly if you don't yeah you know, and, and you've just got audio where somebody's saying can you move this leg for me now well that's probably not <laughs> it's probably may not, not be as helpful no exactly um i suppose that people often get panicked about the idea of a, of a ca analysis but i think the thing is that the unit of analysis is different so you're not gonna have a lot of data relative to what you might collect for other qualitative approaches so you know you you might have a corpus for a particular study of maybe 50 hours of, of video recorded data but your unit of analysis isn't the consultation so it's not like 50 or 100 consultations your unit of analysis is the phenomenon that you're interested in so in those 50 hours of recorded data you've probably got hundreds of questions and answers yeah. or, you know, you, you've probably got hundreds of, of instances where, 
where you know some kind of interactional trouble appears to arise that, yeah. that you might want to, to 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 pick out a bit more so so it, it's thinking a bit differently I think about about what your level of analysis is and you know and accepting that that you're not you know you're not going to be able to deal with huge volumes of data and accepting also that you know that 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 preserving that sequential context is is part of is part of your analysis okay so even then if you're you've got like thousands of hours of video hmm. um in any given video the only bits that you're really interested so for example thinking about your book you're only really interested in the bit where it becomes clear that um, patient-centered care or a foundation of patient-centered care mm. is causing either a good or a bad thing to happen within that interaction. So you is that right or am I misunderstanding what you said about unit of analysis? Just trying to get it in my head. Yeah, sure. So, so, so for, for the data that I use for the book, all that because because all the data came from previous projects it was all already transcribed and and kind of you know and catalogued to some degree but obviously mm. with the lens of the previous projects so so I didn't have to start transcribing from mm. scratch and I, and I wouldn't have had the space to to do that in the fellowship but I I went back, I suppose, you know, I went back looking for where interactional difficulties occurred, you know, and right. some of those were not caught, you know, some of those were caused by simple mishearings or simple, you know, kind of, yeah, yeah you know, or, or, or simple, you know, that the, the patient thought they were, that they were seeing a particular specialist and it turned out to be somebody different or, you know, that some of those were not issues that were about patient-centered care they were they were just kind of ordinary issues of of, of interaction and communication of, of the kind that arise all the time but yeah I was I was interested in kind of you know where where interactional trouble arose and where it seemed to me that that was as a result of of trying to to practice patient-centered care so you know it was very often around choice and decision making uh, not not always, but 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 very often around around those components of a of an interaction. Okay, so conversation analysis allows you then to really dial down on that phenomenon of interest. Mm -hmm. Then what are what are how do you how do you go? So you've you've identified a section of either transcript or video mm -hmm. that you're like, oh, here we'll use the example we used before because it, it bothers me. The GP has said to the patient, what do you want me to do for you today? And the patient's mm -hmm. going, well, that's your job, not mine yeah. um, kind of thing. So how do you then take that? and turn it into you know um and combine well not just turn it into but combine that with like other observations to 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 end up with an interpretation of the results in order to to move the body of literature forward sure so I suppose I'm looking less for a kind of a, the thing about conversational analysis that I've probably well I'm sure I haven't explained and I haven't explained it very well is that is that 
what you're trying to deal with is you're trying to deal with participants orientations so you you and 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 so it's you know the ideal position is that you are not imposing your interpretations as an analyst now I mean we could argue about that for a long time because you know because because in a pure form I just think that's impossible but yeah you know I would agree you know but but that's what you're you know that that is the kind of analytic lens that you're okay so you're beginning you know so it, it it's not what I think are interactional problems it's when it becomes clear in the interaction that you know so okay. so when people say things well like well you're the doctor <laughs> or, yeah you know or, yeah or or roll their eyes and say but you're a learned man yeah then that's a yeah. participant's orientation that, okay. that there is some trouble here okay and I suppose that you know so you collect instances like that together so you you know you, yeah. you, you make collections of the instances where so you know I, I was looking at questions like what do you know so what do you want me to do uh, and noticing that the, you know that the, there were recurring troubles around that also things like how do you you know you know well well, it depends how do you feel how you feel about it or how much are you worried about it you know and and making a set of collections there and then looking at the commonalities in the ways that those that those kind of utterances were both set up by professionals and responded to by patients because you, you you know you're always thinking you know, it's all the question that conversation analysts ask themselves all the time is why that now? So, you know, why this answer in response to this question? And so you're always kind of alert to the possibility of, you know, are the are the particular circumstances here related to this particular interaction, this particular context, this particular medication, you know, whatever it is that's being discussed that are resulting in this? Or or is there a kind of broader interactional pattern? that patients find this question what would you like me to do difficult to respond to <laughs> um, and so you, you know you, you kind of build your collections and I suppose what I did was built a collection or built built a range of collections where what I well I guess I called them in the book good interactional reasons for for mm. bad in inverted commas healthcare practice and I you know I don't I don't mean that I'm defining them as bad I mean that you know they're they're kind of they're things that patient-centered care perhaps says shouldn't happen or you know is less than ideal but they arise I think not because healthcare professionals have bad intentions, but because mm. those things make interactional sense. Because, <laughs> because you're trying to maintain an interaction which has, you know, which which you hope has some kind of, of therapeutic endpoint at the at, uh, at the end of it. I, I think that's one of the things that made me reach out to you and made me really curious about this method is because, um, it it highlighted to me something that I, in my own PhD, I was constantly having to remind myself uh, about doing because I didn't want my findings or my results to be, oh, you did it wrong or you did it wrong because it's it's one of the things around self-care that really, really bothers me. Um, and I really liked how with your book and with conversation analysis, actually the thing the thing that becomes 
or became central, it wasn't about a healthcare provider being bad or having bad intentions. And it wasn't about the patient not being knowledgeable or not being educated or not being experienced or being, you know, a bad patient. It became much more about this thing in between them um, and that interaction then being the thing of, which is, again, what drew me to your book in the first place is how do we fix that interaction? Because across my data set, I saw where positive interactions interpreted by the patient as positive meant that they were off living life. And even though they had very severe disease and very severe symptoms, they're like, man, at least I'm not dead. And off they track across (laughs) the world, right? Where you'd have a different patient who uh, that interaction left them feeling uh, unheard, unsupported, Mm. on whatever. And their results and actions were very much, well, I guess I'll just sit here and wait to die. And, and, and I didn't see it as when I looked at the data and who I am, I didn't see it as, well, it's definitely the patient's fault or it's definitely that. I saw it as the the thing in the middle, but that wasn't what my PhD was about, which is why I love this and why I wanted to pick your brain about conversation <laughs> analysis, because I'm considering it again, but I am terrified. <laughs> so this is this has been really, really helpful because you've really broken it down and and um made it so that I I understand it in a new way the conversation analysis and thinking about it not from like because my my brain is very numbers Mm -hmm. based and well word as well but like I want to count things it's a knee-jerk reaction that I want to count things and so I'm like why like the idea of knowing long pauses or short pauses and stuff like that and having to keep track of that instantly I'm like information overload so pulling back and being like actually no it's about it's about the flow of that interaction it's about that phenomenon of interest has been very very helpful um I'm just very conscious of the time I told you it would fly by I could talk to you about this for like the rest of the night but I'm pretty sure nobody would listen to that long of a conversation and I'm pretty sure you want to go home um so any last sort of uh tips or advice like if somebody is out there like I was Mm -hmm. at the beginning of my PhD and they're like this conversation analysis looks interesting but I'm terrified Mm -hmm. what would you say to them so what I think I would say is that it's a really hard thing to do on your own so you know but at the same time it's not a method that is maybe massively widespread in the UK you know there are there are kind of places in the UK where there are little groups of people but not necessarily every institution has a has a conversation analyst that you could talk to but you know kind of one of the one of the things that has come to us since the pandemic is that there are lots more things available online now than than the way you know whereas once once upon a time face to face was the default now now lots of things are being done online and that means that they're more accessible to people so so there are there are great data sessions that that exist that people can join um you know if, if they're kind of interested to see to see firsthand in a much better way than I've been able to to describe the kinds of work that 
that conversation analysts do with a piece of data. So, so you know, it's a very common way of working in conversation analysis that you'd, you know, you'd have your data, you'd have a little look, and you'd have your initial thoughts and build your initial collections. Mm. But then you would take that bit of data to a data session with other CA researchers who would also help you unpick that, you know, kind of share their their observations. So, um, Loughborough University has a has a discourse analysis research group, DARG, who who have online data sessions that, that people can join if they if they sign up to the mailing list. Um, there are CA South data sessions that are run, I think, out of Southampton that that, that yeah. also um, you know that, that people can also sign up for. So, so you know that's if if you don't have a kind of friendly local conversation analyst and you want to see, you know, what what this looks like, then then that's a that's a really good resource, I think. Um, you know, and also I mean just you know, it is definitely one of those things that uh, it's it's much less scary to do than than you imagine if you if you look <laughs> at those transcripts, I think. But it's also kind of a bit like riding a bike in that it's a lot harder to describe how it is to do it than it is actually to do it. And so, you know, kind of what, what I would say is, you know, is have a go. And that isn't to say that, you know, like it's definitely not a way of working that suits everybody. So, you know, you, you, you do have to be prepared to spend a lot of time picking over what look to other people like tiny bits of data and, and justifying that because of its focus on participants orientations it can also feel a bit restrictive sometimes so you know sometimes sometimes there are things that I am damn sure are going on in my data that I don't know might be in relation to to kind of gender or some other like large-scale sociological variable but I can't pin it down to anything specific in the interaction and then from a CA perspective you've just got to walk away from it you know if you if you can't if yeah. you can't find an analytic warrant for it in the participants talk or yeah. or you know non-verbal interaction you can't analyze it from a CA perspective you know and that that doesn't sit well for people sometimes mm. so you know I kind of you know I I am a bit evangelistic about the benefits that a CA analysis can bring but I am also you know kind of clear that it's it's not a way of working that that suits everybody and well, uh, yeah, I think that's true of everything, though, because I had I can think of an example in my data, in my PhD, where I had the same handcuffs. Um, mm -hmm. Where I was like, I'm pretty sure that this individual feels this way about that clinical interaction. Because of things that she would never say. Um, but I knew because of all the greater context that I knew of of those individuals. So it's one of those things where I'm just like, I think I think all research has got its limitations. And I think all researchers become frustrated with their research um, and the tools that they're using. But um, yeah. <laughs> Um, excellent. Um, any other last tips before we say goodbye? Yeah, I suppose. Like, so, so I gave a talk on my book uh, recently and, and somebody said to me at the end of it, you know, it kind of it feels like this is one long advert for conversation analysis. <laughs> 
and kind of what you know what are, what are the broader things that you want people to to take home and, and I suppose that you know I suppose most fundamentally what I think is that, that what I wanted to do in the book is highlight the importance of looking at the actual evidence really and, and kind of to mm. to highlight the dangers of starting with a moral position because I think the problem is that you become so invested in a moral position that then it's really difficult to act in the face of contradictory evidence and you know and I know and I, and I completely understand that you know that that patient-centered care comes from a good place but I think the difficulty is that you know it's really hard to put moral moral principles into practice in any in any straightforward way and that's because moral principles can conflict <laughs> Yeah. You know, that you know, that they're kind of not absolute and they're and they're usually very context dependent. So um so I think that's one thing that I'd say. I think the second thing is that I think we need to lose a little bit of our obsession with individual choice and autonomy in individual consultations. And you know, that that's a very kind of neoliberal worldview and this this idea that that control of a consultation is the most important thing and the idea that control is a zero-sum game because I think when you look at interactions in detail that's just not how they're constructed you know they're kind of mm. healthcare is a much more collaborative endeavor than, than some of those framings would would suggest and so you know it's absolutely not that I think we shouldn't think about patient experience but I just think that scoring it on a scale is not is not perhaps the most productive way of of thinking about that you know I think we might be better invested in thinking about how we use patient experience in in co-design of services and co-production of healthcare resources so that so that you know if the system looked a bit different the consultations would also have space to to look a bit different too yeah you know, I think it's really interesting that that we don't there's not much discussion of relational autonomy in the patient-centered mm. care literature but in reality you know most of us live our lives within that kind of relational autonomy framework and, and mm. so you know, it, it seems to me a kind of curious absence um I suppose as well I think that you know we do need to think a bit about how we rehabilitate medical expertise I think we've we've inadvertently made it a bit problematic um, and I think we'd be better off recognising that, that professionals have access to knowledge that patients want or need and think about how that expertise can get, you know, how, how it can be enacted productively and, and sensitively and civilly in, in ways that are acceptable to 21st century patients rather than rather than imagining that, you know, it, it, it's kind of it's a problem or it's something that we need to manage mm. and then I suppose the last thing is that you know and, and, and everybody will say well she she would say this you know that that part of the problem I think with patient-centered care is that we've tried to take practices that work in ordinary interaction like allowing somebody to set an agenda and transplant them to healthcare interaction without a recognition that they don't work in the same way in a different context so you know something something that can work perfectly well in in everyday interaction mm. doesn't necessarily work in the same way in a healthcare context and so I think you know we've 
we've got to recognize that that most you know maybe nearly all healthcare policies that are patient facing at the end of the day have to be talked into being where care is delivered mm, yeah and so what i think needs to happen is that we need to advocate for policy to be grounded in a in a solid inter and a solid understanding of how healthcare interaction actually works in practice. Mm. So like not what we think it should look like and not what we hope it looks like and not what people say it looks like if you ask them what they do, but what it actually looks like in, in practice. Because I think we do an awful lot of studying interaction post hoc as a way of policy evaluation. So, you know, we we look at it to see if this if this policy worked or if people were, you know, if, if, if there was intervention fidelity, you know, if people did what they what the intervention told them they were supposed to do. But I really think we need to move beyond its use just as an evaluative tool, because mm. in a funny way, I think that healthcare interaction is even more fundamentally important than proponents of of patient-centered care realize but i think we're kind of starting from the wrong place in in explicating that importance wow mind blown i love it i love it i'm going to be listening to this again myself um Thank you so much for uh, joining me here and um, sharing your thoughts on your book, your thoughts about healthcare revolution, your thoughts of um, around conversation analysis and the power that it will have to help us better inform the changes that, I mean, the changes are coming because our healthcare system, not just here in the UK, it, it, it needs to change. It's not it's not fit for purpose. Um, so I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've learned loads um, as sort of standard. Um, I will send you an email and chase up a couple of bits that you talked about in the podcast episode, just so that I can put those in the details for everybody out there listening. Um, in addition to her bio, I'll also put like where you can find um, Professor Pilnick on social media, um, <clears throat> as well as like her book link and things like that. And uh, in the description so that you can dive into some of the work and have a read for yourself and see what you think um in partnership of this podcast um and yeah i think we better wrap it up because otherwise we will be here all night <laughs> um but thank you thank you very very much and thank you to everybody out there who's listening uh to the podcast and um yeah make sure you do go in the description and i will see you all again soon thank you very much Rosalyn. i've really enjoyed it Thank you. Don't go away. Up next, we have the top three takeaways from this week's podcast by Dr. Rosalind Austin. There was so much packed into that episode. Professor Alison Pilnick was interesting to listen to. She has so much experience around looking at healthcare interactions across such a breadth of different clinical expertise, as well as different patient types. Um, I was just, I was fascinated. I'm definitely going to be listening to this episode again myself just to try and get more of what she was saying processed. My top takeaways. 
So the first top takeaway for me is opportunity. Now, it's not really something that we talked about. She kind of hinted at it when she was talking about her journey. So she trained as a pharmacist. And when she'd finished training as a pharmacist at that time period, there wasn't really the thing called clinical academic that a lot of us um, and a lot of people now consider doing. So having a career that is a bit clinical and a bit academic. Um, and so she ended up going on a very different pathway that has led her to becoming a sociologist, but it stemmed from an observation as a clinical individual in a pharmacy that her skills weren't, well, she felt her skills weren't up to what the patients needed in order to have a successful interaction. And that has now led her down a body of research and a, and a lifetime of work around trying to unlock and better understand that healthcare interaction. So I thought that was just it's a really interesting idea is that opportunity, even if it might be taking you in a slightly different direction to how you thought your career might go, might actually lead you to a really interesting life's work around research in a given area that you might not have been expecting. So yeah, that was quite interesting. The second thing that really hit home to me is um, sort of a parallel to some of my own research. And her her warning, maybe that's a bit strong, but her, her advice uh, to all researchers is to really consider what is the actual evidence base. And I can remember at the beginning of my PhD, you all get told, oh, look in the literature, see what's there. But really dive into that and figure out what is the evidence behind those policies, behind those decisions, behind those care pathways? And is there actually robust evidence behind that? Or is there something else that's behind it? And then using that to kind of frame or give you a context to try and move things forward in your own research. Um, so I really liked that as as my second top, top takeaway is to genuinely examine what the evidence base is and not just like oh is somebody else written about this but actually how are what is the evidence behind the decisions and the policies and the pathways in healthcare um, in order to get a better understanding of what what that might look like so I really I really enjoyed her challenge to us on that and then um, the third one which is going to be a big one because Uh, I want to dive into both what she was saying around her book, but also, I think, more importantly, her methodology. So I think I'm going to focus on the methodology for the third one. And maybe I'll do a fourth top takeaway just as a benefit. But the third one being sometimes as a beginner, you can look at a given method and be like, oh, my goodness, that's that's so big. That's so scary. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, how am I going to do that? And you can let that worry um, uh, dissuade you from doing something and I think for me her sharing what conversation analysis actually is and looks like from a practical point of view really helped me because it really made me see that um, it's not necessarily about the nitty-gritty of how long a given pause is which is what I thought in the beginning but it's actually about 
what is your unit of analysis? And I loved that that term that she said um, and considering that. So if you're looking for something that's little, then you might have an overwhelming amount of data. But if you're looking for something bigger, like whether it's a good interaction or, or a not so good interaction or an average interaction, then actually some of that level of detail may not you may not need all of it. And so it's about really dialing down around that phenomenon of interest and then asking that question is why why did that individual do that now? So why did they roll their eyes? Why did they whatever? And I really, I really enjoyed her analogy of, and I think it, it applies for lots of different methods, but she used it around conversation analysis. She's like, it's a really hard thing to describe to somebody how to do, you know, like riding a bike, you know, you have to, there's so many, there's such a complex amount of actions that are happening in order for you to ride a bike successfully. But once you know how to do it, you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. And that's what she reckons conversation analysis is like I don't know I'll see if I get brave enough to do some conversation analysis and then I can maybe can report back to you maybe we can have other people tell us in the comments what conversation analysis is like for them if they've given it a try um, and whether or not it's overwhelming detail or whether you can go more macro let me know in the comments um, so yeah the I think I think I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to do my the the other thing that I was going to say. So I'll leave it at that as my top takeaways. One, opportunity leading you down a pathway that you may not have expected or anticipated. Um, two, around um, digging into the evidence and really looking and unpicking whether or not there is. Um, what the evidence is behind a given thing that you're interested in and how robust is that evidence. And then three is that give a method a try. What's the worst that can happen, right? Everybody eventually learns to ride a bike, don't they? Um, so yeah, uh, those are my three top takeaways. What were your top three takeaways? Let me know in the comments below. Um, just a reminder, Make sure that you like and subscribe to this podcast, either on the podcasting platform that you downloaded on, if you're listening or on YouTube, if you're watching. Um, and don't forget to go into the description um, to find out more about Alison, where she works, how you can follow her on social media, um, as well as she's given a specific link that will give you a little bit of money off of her book if you have been inspired by some of what she was sharing around her book and you want to find out more. Until next time, keep asking why and watch out in three more weeks for the next episode of Researcher Revealed. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.